Well, before I get started, remember, please keep our pastor in your prayers. I think Enro's preaching next week. And after that, we're not sure yet. <laughs> before we get started, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time, this most holy day. Lord, as we come now to this point in our worship, Lord, we consider more of your word and what it has to say to us. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, that you would by your spirit, open our eyes and ears to your truth, Lord, that we would embrace them, Lord, that we would love you, Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, convict us of our wrongdoing, of our wrong thinking, Lord, that so we may lead lives that please and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, often I will look back upon my years as a hyper-preterist, and think about how I got into such a crazy belief to start with. And then think about what it took to get me out of that after seven years. And you know, there's times when I think, well, I hate that that happened. You know, I wasted seven years of my life. But then there's times when I look back and I say, yeah, but God used all of that to get me to where I am today. And an important part of where I am today is in recognizing that there's certain doctrines that apparently I did not think were that big of a deal at that time, because if I did, I wouldn't have rejected them. But I've come to realize just how essential and necessary and important these doctrines are. And so in a way, God let me fall down into this very weird, dark place so that I could see and experience firsthand where you end up if these doctrines are not in place, if they're not emphasized. And there are a number of doctrines that I have in mind, but the one doctrine I want to focus on today is the doctrine of resurrection. Now, before we get to talking directly about it, let me give you a little backdrop here, some context, especially with respect to hyperpreterism. And some of this is going to be rehearsal. You've heard this, but just bear with me. In theology, we study this thing called eschatology. The word eschatology comes from two Greek words, eschatos and logos. Logos means instruction, word, teaching, doctrine. Eschatos means last or farthest. And so when you put those two words together, eschatology, what we are talking about then is the teaching or instruction or word, or you could say the study of what is last what is ultimate. If God has a plan, which he does, the study of of the eschaton deals with how that plan comes to its final end, its completion, its goal. Now, some theologians will divide eschatology further into two parts, personal or individual eschatology and corporate or cosmic. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, remarks on this. He says, The biblical material treating this locus of theology has traditionally encompassed both personal eventualities such as death, the state of the disembodied human soul, the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, and the individual's ultimate eternal destiny, and cosmic eventualities such as the return of Christ, the liberation of creation from its bondage to decay in the new heaven and new earth. While both of these areas are vital to a holistic biblical eschatology, one should not forget that personal eschatology, as it issues in the glorification of believers and the reprobation of unbelievers, is really an aspect of the second area of eventualities, which issues in the cosmic climax and consummation of God's eternal purpose for the world as we presently know it. So in other words, though we may distinguish between the last things of our individual experience in contrast to the last things of what God is going to do on a massive scale with creation, all of these things are working together and share in the importance and significance of bringing to pass what is ultimate in God's plan. Raymond also says this, this area of theology, that is eschatology, is the capstone of systematic theology with every other locus of theology finding its resolution in it, unquote. 
And then further, Raymond goes on to say that, quote, in fact, eschatology is so significant for New Testament thought in general that many New Testament theologians are prepared to argue that New Testament theology as a whole, as the theology of the age of fulfillment, is, if not eschatology per se, eschatologically oriented with respect to all of its majors, uh, soteriolo soteriological and ethical emphasis, unquote. And let me tell you, after the trick that I've had with hyperpreterism, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people who would argue the importance and massive significance of eschatology. Two quick points that I can make from what we just heard from Raymond. The first point is this, is that though we may divide the last things into personal things like death and what happens to our soul after we die in the resurrection, versus those cosmic things like the return of Christ, the arrival of new heavens and new earth, we cannot divorce any of these core essential doctrines from the system. You can't say, well, I'll affirm the return of Christ, but hey, you can have the resurrection stuff. It's not that big of a deal. The second point is that just as we can't pick and choose within eschatology, those essential eschatological doctrines, what we want and don't want, so we cannot divorce the study of eschatology as a whole from our system of theology or downplay it. This is why I take issue with statements like these, and I found this on just in my reading. I was, you might have seen that website, Got Questions. There's actually some decent stuff on there. But in the article entitled, What is Christian Eschatology? It says, eschatology is the study of what the Bible says is going to happen in the end times. Many treat eschatology as an area of theology to be avoided, which the site goes on and says, well, we disagree with that because eschatology is not unimportant. But it's this statement that I disagree with. They say, of course, eschatology is not as crucial as Christology or soteriology. And I think that's wrong. As Raymond pointed out, Eschatology is the capstone of systematic theology, with every other locus of theology finding its resolution in it. All of these other ologies that we're studying, when you study them together and you piece them together, they should be guiding you down a certain path to a certain goal. And so if you end up in a completely different place at the end, then what that tells me is that you've gone off track somewhere in the process. For example, suppose you and I, suppose I got in my car and you got on your car just right here in the parking lot and our goal is to get to Orlando. Well, if in an hour from now, I'm in Orlando and you're almost in St. Pete, which is the direct opposite direction of Orlando. What does that tell me? You've taken a wrong turn somewhere. and You've ended up somewhere different. Eschatology is, is as crucial as Christology and soteriology because if your eschatology is severely messed up, then what that tells me is that you've taken a wrong turn somewhere in your Christology and in your soteriology. If your system ends up in a place where it denies the resurrection of the dead, then let me tell you something. You strayed off the path at some point a long time ago. And nothing displays that point better than hyperpreterism and its teaching on resurrection. So what is hyperpreterism? And again, I know you guys at this church know this, but for the sake of those who are listening online and may not know it, and just as a little reminder for you and to set some context for our discussion today, let me explain what it is and how it relates to resurrection. Simply put, hyperpreterism or full preterism is the belief that the eschaton, that is the last things, of the Bible were fulfilled in the first century, primarily through the events of the Roman Jewish War and the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple in AD 70. And the main way that they arrive at that conclusion is through what are oftentimes called the time text. These verses in the New Testament would seem to indicate that the eschaton was going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. And so around the end of 2001, kind of started with the 9-11 attacks. In 2002, I began to entertain this theory. 
Now, I had no idea that there were other people out there who were teaching it. The way I came about it was because when I kept hearing my friends say, Jesus is coming back soon, I thought, well, doesn't the New Testament say he's coming soon? Well, it does. In fact, one of the last things Jesus says, it's recorded in Revelation, behold, I am coming soon. But that was written 2,000 years ago. So what do we mean by the word soon? I mean, if Jesus is going to return in our lifetime, that's what we mean when we say soon. Then isn't that what they meant when they used the word soon? And if not, then is there two totally different meanings for the word soon? Now, the way people would get around this is to argue that that for soon for us means something totally different than what it meant for Jesus when he said it. God's soon is different than our human soon. Well, I wasn't buying that. And so I thought, well, if what we mean by soon is exactly what the New Testament authors meant, and they were expecting Jesus to return in their lifetime, what's the harm in saying that? I mean, I'm honoring the Bible, right? I'm quoting scripture. So eventually I came to embrace this idea that Jesus Christ had already came back and the destruction of the temple was a sign of that. But now you have to do something with resurrection. Apparently resurrection is not what I thought it was because the traditional Christian understanding of resurrection doesn't work in this theory. The traditional understanding is that the souls of all who have died will be reunited with their earthly, fleshly body, which has been raised from death and transformed. And the bodies of those who are alive when this happens will transform immediately without having to go through that whole process of death and separation of body and soul. Well, you can't have that with hyperpreterism. All the bodies of the dead did not rise from the dust of the earth in AD 70. Now, there are some who argue that there was some sort of physical resurrection that took place back then for some people, but it just doesn't happen for everyone. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You can't have it for some people and not others. And so if you're going to really take this theory of hyperpreterism seriously, you have to redefine resurrection in some way to make it fit what happened historically in AD 70. So what is the general idea of resurrection within hyperpreterism? Well, it's basically this. Prior to the incarnation of Christ, when a person died, whether they were a believer or not, their body would return to the dust, never to be heard or seen from again. The soul would depart to this otherworldly realm, this underworld of sorts, where it would be held in prison, as it were, until the quote-unquote resurrection. And this place is what is believed to be referred to in the Bible by the Hebrew word Sheol and the Greek word Hades. So it's an actual place. When Jesus died, it was argued that his soul went to this place. And there he may have possibly even shared the good news with the the part you know, some people use a statement from Peter to argue this. Well, then after three days, Jesus leaves Hades. He was the first and only person to do so. He then reunites with his body, which has been laid in the tomb for three days, and then he physically manifests himself to people on earth merely as a sign that he had conquered Hades. Now, it's important to catch this. Hyperpreters do not deny that his dead body came back to life. But the only point of that was so that Christ could show himself to his disciples and others as a sign that he got out of Hades. Otherwise, they wouldn't have known that he left. Remember, we're talking about souls. We're talking about invisible realms. We're talking about this place, Hades, that's in another dimension. We on this earth can't see it. Jesus could have, if he wanted, left Hades and just went straight to heaven. But if he had done that, how would those alive on the earth have known that he had done that? They wouldn't. So the whole point of the resurrection of Christ, this is according to hyperpreterism, 
was merely for Jesus to reveal himself to them so that he can say, hey, it's me, I made it out. And now I'm going to go to the Father in heaven. That was the only point. So much so that according to many, if not most high priests, and certainly the main ones, when Jesus ascended into heaven, there in Acts, he got rid of his body. What's the purpose of it? It served as a sign. He showed the sign. Now I don't need the body because I'm going to heaven. Why would he need it? So what happens later after 87? Well, Jesus, or what, in 87, Jesus goes and gets all the souls of those who are in this invisible realm. He judges them and he sends the souls of the righteous to heaven and the souls of the unrighteous to the lake of fire. And this is what we, they call the resurrection of the dead. The souls who, of all who were dead up to that time were raised up out of Hades. And so for the hyper prayers, what happens after this? Well, if you're a believer and you die, your soul goes straight to heaven. You get to skip the Hades part. And if you're an unbeliever, your soul goes straight to the lake of fire. Hades as a holding place is no longer in the picture. And this fleshly, earthly body is discarded forever. There's no point in it anymore. I mean, you're in heaven. You made it. Why in the world would you want your body back? Have you seen your body? <laughs> that, in a nutshell, like I said, is the general idea of resurrection. To be raised, which is essentially what the word resurrection means, to stand up, to rise, means that the soul is raised to heaven. And there was a general resurrection in which all the souls of those who had died up to that point from, from the creation of man were raised out of Hades and taken into heaven. And now there's a continual resurrection. Even now, as soon as you die, you go straight to heaven. You're being raised. Now, that doesn't seem too bad, does it? What's so bad about that? I mean, historic Christianity teaches that when a righteous person dies, their soul departs and goes to heaven now. And isn't that the goal? Isn't that what we're all hoping for and wanting? Okay, so we don't get our bodies back. What's the big deal? What good is the fleshly, earthly body going to be in heaven anyways? Seems like it would restrict you. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned we're in heaven. <laughs> We made it. Why in the world do we need to drag our old body into this? I mean, am I really to believe that Father Abraham is in heaven now, which we all believe, and he's up there thinking, you know, heaven's great. I just wish I had my body. That just seems silly, doesn't it? And beloved, don't think that this, this is a mentality of hyper-preterist alone. It's not. I've shared this before with you guys. When I left, even during the time that I was, we would visit evangelical churches, conservative churches, some even Calvinistic, Baptist, Presbyterian, you name it. I've heard people say things like, well, that's what I believe. I believe that when I die, I go straight to heaven. At that point, I don't really care what happens to my body. Or I'll hear something like, oh, I believe in the resurrection of our bodies, but it's not as crucial as those other doctrines. It's not that important. And that's where I was back in 2001. Apparently, the idea of our bodies needing to be raised and transformed just wasn't a big deal to me, which is why I was able to entertain this theory and do away with that understanding altogether. But now I'm just the opposite. Now I'll say to the hyperpreterists, you not only deny the doctrine of resurrection by your redefining it, but in your denial, you have placed yourself outside of the faith and you're teaching a false gospel. And this not only gets the hyperpreterists worked up, but it even gets many non-hyperpreterists worked up. Jason, how can you say that? How can you call these people heretics? They believe in Jesus. They even believe he rose from the dead. Okay, so we're not going to get our bodies. What's the big deal? I mean, we all end up in heaven. Isn't that what we wanted? How can you place so much emphasis on the body? Well, that gets me to the heart 
of this today. I do this because Paul does it. And Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says something very interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. He says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now think about that for a second. I say this as statements interesting because I actually use this verse as a hyperpreterist to argue that the traditional understanding of resurrection of bodies cannot make sense of this verse. How so? Again, put yourself in the mindset of the This is why I went through this. Put yourself in that mindset. The essential meaning of resurrection, according to them, is that the soul is raised to heaven. And so if there are some at Corinth who were denying that, possibly suggesting that the soul would stay in Hades forever, or, or maybe the soul would just die along with the body, would just be annihilated. Then Paul's statement here seem, would seem to make sense. If in Christ we have hope in his life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, because when we die, we're not going to heaven. So we should be pitied. That makes sense, doesn't it, in the abstract? But how does that statement make sense in the traditional view? Because as we have already noted, in the traditional Christian view, when a believer dies, their soul goes to heaven. And there they await the resurrection of the body. But if that resurrection of the body is never going to happen, which is what some in Corinth were arguing, why would Paul say that we are of all people most to be pitied? Why would we be pitied? We're in heaven still. Okay, so we're not going to get our bodies back. Who cares? We're in heaven. Why would anyone pity someone who is in heaven just because they don't have their body? Can you see how we argued this? Can you see how we would take verses like these and use them? I mean, if you're going to take the traditional Christian understanding of 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul here is arguing about resurrection of physical bodies, it would seem here that Paul is arguing that if our earthly bodies are not resurrected and transformed, then every single bit of our Christian faith is useless and worthless. It's as if Paul is saying, if our bodies are not raised, then you don't get none of it. It's as if Paul is arguing that with respect to the resurrection of the body, it's all or nothing. And beloved, I'm here to tell you that that is exactly Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 15. That is exactly what he is arguing. That's why I said earlier what I did regarding this notion, as we heard from the Got Questions website, that, well, eschatology is important, but it's not as crucial. That's not what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding resurrection. Paul says, if our bodies are not raised, then you might as well stop coming to church. You might as well stop calling yourself a Christian. Chunk your Bible. It's worthless. It's useless. useless. Your faith is in vain. You're living a lie. You're living in a delusion. And you're still in your sins. Listen to Paul. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we're of all people most to be pitied. Does this sound like Paul has this attitude of, well, we can take it or leave it? No, emphatically not. Paul says that the dead are not raised our preaching is in vain. We're wasting our time right now. Your faith is in vain. You're liars. You're living in a delusion. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have died have perished. And even we who are still alive are to be pitied. How? 
Why can Paul say this? Why does Paul make the resurrection of our body an absolute and necessary essential element to our faith? Well, there's two ways that I think you can argue it here in this immediate context. The first thing we can point out is the logical relationship that Paul makes between the resurrection of Christ with the resurrection of the dead in general. Note that in verses 12 through 19, Paul's argument against these deniers was to establish a logical, thus necessarily implied relationship between our resurrection with the resurrection of Christ. There is a logical relationship between these two things, his resurrection, our resurrection. And this is part of the force of Paul's argument. Notice Paul says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, there's the argument, there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And in verse 16, for if Christ is not raised, not even, or sorry, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's saying it again. These are logical arguments Paul's making here. If we were to convert Paul's words to the language of logical forms, what Paul is essentially arguing here that if it is true that no A is B, then it cannot be true that some A is B, because some A is B cannot be inferred from no A is B. Now, if that just went over your head, let me say it in simpler terms. If a person is claiming that no one can rise from the dead, he is making a universal claim. It's impossible. But if that's true, no one can do it. There's no exceptions. And if that's true, then obviously it cannot be true at the same time that a particular person rose from the dead because now you're contradicting yourself. You're making an exception. Either no one can do it or some can. It cannot be both at the same time. And the flip side to it is this. If it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, which these deniers believed in, it is then false to say that no one can rise from the dead. All right, and so there's this logical relationship that exists between our resurrection and his. But I think there's more to it than just this logical relationship. Now, why do I say that? Because Paul goes on to argue that if Christ did not rise, there's further implications of that. And what are those implications? We just read it. Your faith is in vain. And again, verse 17, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Well, how can that be? I mean, think about it. If the purpose of Jesus's resurrection was merely to be a sign, nothing more. It was merely a way for Jesus to show himself to his disciples so that he could say, hey, I made it out of Hades. and Now I'm fixing to go to heaven. How could our faith in our salvation from sins rest merely in a sign? Let me put it this way. Suppose Jesus didn't raise his body. Suppose when he left Hades, he went straight to heaven. And he didn't bother to let anybody know on the earth, hey, I've left Hades, I've went to heaven. Would that have affected their salvation? Would that have kept us in our sins? I would think that if his resurrection were merely a sign, then the answer to that would be no, it wouldn't have affected that. Sure, it would have left them puzzled and concerned because they're sitting around wondering what happened. But they probably would have figured it out after a while, especially when the Spirit is poured out. They probably would have gone through the Scriptures like Peter might have said, hey, wait a second, I, I don't think he's in Hades anymore. I think he left. I think he's in heaven. It wouldn't have affected their salvation because it was just a sign, supposedly. But beloved, that's not Paul's argument here. Paul emphatically states that if Jesus had not risen from the tomb, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. This is a salvation issue. Well, how can he say that? Well, I'll tell you why he said it. Because the resurrection of Christ was more than just a sign. In fact, I would argue that making those appearances to all those people prior to when he ascended wasn't even the point of his resurrection. 
You see, the whole premise that his body resurrection was merely a sign is completely false. It is dangerously false. It is a you-deny-the-gospel type of error. There is something more to Jesus' resurrection than it being merely just a sign. And there's something deeper to his resurrection as it relates to our resurrection than just a logical relationship. So what is that something deeper? Well, I think Paul answers that question in what follows verse 19. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The key word here, I think, is that word first fruits, verse 20. And what that implies, as Paul lays out for us in verses 21 and 22. So what can we glean from this statement, first fruits? Well, I guess the first thing we need to ask ourselves is what is a first fruit? Simply put, when you're growing something in the field, a crop like strawberries, there's some time that has to lapse for those things to ripen. And they don't all ripen at once. In fact, if you've gone and picked strawberries or any kind of fruit of that sort, you'll notice some are ready and some are not. You can pick some, some you've got to let go. Give them some more time. Well, Jesus is called the first fruit of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, I think it means this. According to the prophets, there is a harvest that is going to come at the end of time. That harvest being the gathering up of all people for final judgment, which includes the resurrection of our bodies. That harvest has not yet come. Take a look around you. Is this, is, do I live glorified? Far from it. Obviously, that harvest has not come, but it has been inaugurated in the person of Christ with his resurrection. Let that sink in for a moment. What we see in the resurrection of Christ is exactly what we are going to see in the general resurrection at the end of history. That is the future end, the eschaton, has already dawned on us in the past with the resurrection of Christ. And it's exactly for this reason that I think we find some of the language that we do find in the New Testament. Peter says, for example, the end of all things is at hand. And in Hebrews, it says we're in these last days. And in Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10, it says it was on them that the end of the ages have come. This also would explain verses like these. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. Paul, what do you mean we're a new creation? The new creation ain't here yet. But beloved, it is here in a sense. It has dawned upon us. The eschaton has been inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ with his resurrection. You thought Back to the Future was cool movies. That's, that's fiction. This ain't fiction. The future has stepped back into the past. And revealed itself. How amazing is that? When we consider the resurrection of Christ, we're actually looking at the future now. But there's more to it than that. Notice Paul says we are a new creation if, if we are what? In Christ. This phrase in Christ is a very popular one with Paul. I'm not going to, we have 
40 minutes of reading all that. He says it a lot. But I think he says it a lot because it's the key to his, to his theology. There is a union that exists between Christ and his people. Such a union that whatever is said to happen of Christ is said to happen of his people. And I believe that's the other significance behind the term first fruit. It's not only speaking of time and perhaps even the preeminence of Christ as the first, but it's speaking of our union with Christ. We are in union with him. And he was the first fruit. And so what follows in our resurrection will be exactly what occurred with him as the first fruit. That is exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what he says. But if, uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. You were united in Adam, you died with him so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ wasn't just made alive. He was made alive, and he's bringing life with him to other people, resurrection. But, verse 23, it's not going to happen like you might have thought it was from reading the Old Testament. It's not all going to happen at once, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You know, we talked about this before with Romans 5, if you think about it. Paul's hitting on the same stuff. Adam was more than acting on just his behalf. God had made him a federal head or representative of mankind, such that when he sinned and brought death to himself, he didn't just bring it upon himself, he brought it to all with whom he was united with. Paul says this in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. Now, notice the contrast with Christ. Christ is the new Adam. Christ is a federal head of this new creation, this new race of people, if you want to put it that way. And so when Christ obeys, not sin like Adam did, the first Adam, but when he obeys and is made alive, resurrection, he's not only doing that for himself, but for all who are in union with him. Listen to it again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, this is Paul in Romans 5. In verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may, might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, make no mistake about this. I know Paul's not using the language of resurrection in first fruits here in Romans 5. But he's talking resurrection here. This is what he means by eternal life. That's what's spoken of here. And it's all grounded in our union with him. This is the language of Romans 8 as well. There Paul says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And listen to this, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, there's our union, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now I want to read something from John Murray commenting on this. And this is where, you know, when you find something that he states it well, I'll just read it. He says, this verse, verse 17, where it says we're fellow heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. This verse obviously states the inference drawn from the fact of sonship respecting the glory that awaits the people of God and is to be revealed or is to be related to verse 14. There, the fact of the glory that awaits the people, oh, wait. there, the fact of sonship was adduced as the guarantee of eternal life. Here, that is in verse 17, this is expanded, and the life that awaits the people of God is defined, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And he says, see, for, uh, for reference also Galatians 4, 7, where the same logical sequence is expressed even more succinctly. Heirs of God can involve nothing less than that the sons of God are heirs of the inheritance which God himself has laid up for them. But it is difficult to suppress the richer and deeper thought that God himself is the inheritance of his children. Support is given to this notion when we consider that they are joint heirs with Christ. So what does this mean, joint heirs with Christ? This is what he's going to explain. The reward of Christ was preeminently that he was glorified with the Father and the Lord was the portion of his inheritance. Joint heirs with Christ means that the children of God enter in jointly with Christ into the possession of the inheritance which was bestowed upon him. This is the aspect from which union and communion with Christ which the apostle had emphasized in other connections in earlier portions of this epistle, are to be viewed in the state of glory. Just as Christ in his sufferings, his death, his resurrection cannot be contemplated apart from those on whose behalf he suffered, died, and rose again, so in the glory that was bestowed upon him as the reward of his finished work, he cannot be contemplated apart from them. And they, in the state of glory, cannot be contemplated apart from him. Therefore, the glory of their inheritance can be none other than the glory which is Christ in the reward of his exaltation. This is expressly stated in the final clause of the verse where it says, quote, that we may be also glorified with him. It is well to be reminded that this is what Jesus prayed for on behalf of his own when he prayed in John 17, Father, I will that they also whom thou givest me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Joint heirs of, with Christ is not a loftier con, uh, conception than heirs of God, but it gives concrete expression and elucidation to what is involved in being heirs of God. And then he says, where Paul says, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him, Murray says, this is the condition upon which the attainment of the inheritance is contingent. There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is sharing in his sufferings. Sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ himself. It could not have been otherwise in terms of his messianic undertaking and design. The same order applies to those who are heirs with him. It is not only, however, that they must suffer and then enter glory. It is more than a it is. Uh, wait, it is not only, however, that they must suffer and then enter glory. It is more than a parallelism of order. It needs to be noted that they suffer with him, and this joint participation is emphasized in the case of suffering, as it is in the case of glorification. This is both the reason for and the import of the emphasis which is placed in the New Testament, and particularly in Paul, upon the sufferings of the people of God as the sufferings of Christ. Believers do not contribute to the accomplishment of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, 
Nowhere are their sufferings represented as having such virtue or efficacy. The Lord laid his people's iniquities upon Christ alone, and in him alone did God reconcile the world to himself. Christ alone redeemed us by his blood. Nevertheless, there are other aspects from which the sufferings of the children of God are be classified with the sufferings of Christ himself. They partake of the sufferings which Christ endured, and they are regarded as filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and glorification of the whole body of Christ. Again, union and communion with Christ are the explanation of this and the validation of this participation, end quote. I think Murray's right on the money. And think about it. What's the flip side to this? If that's true, what is the flip side to this? The flip side to it is this. If you argue that we will not be raised because of our union with Christ, you're not only denying that of us, you're denying it of Christ. And if you're denying that of the Son, then in terms of his messianic undertaking and design, in terms of his work of redemption, he failed. That's the implications of that. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that we just went through a whole series on on the death of Christ as atonement. And we emphasize substitution. He did this for us in our stead, in our behalf. And we often think of the death of Christ in these terms. But how often do we think of those terms in relationship to his glorification and his resurrection? Beloved, what he accomplished for us and on our behalf did not end at the cross. He was vindicated. He was resurrected. He was rewarded. He ascended bodily to the Father to receive his inheritance. And what he did in all that was not only for himself, but for us who are united to him. It is this union and communion with Christ that I believe Paul has in mind. And that's what prompted him to say that if you deny this resurrection for us, then you deny it of Christ. And if you deny it of Christ, there is no victory. There is no hope. There is no salvation. He failed. He came to do something and he failed because you're saying it didn't happen. Well, I'm not saying it. Well, you're saying it's not going to happen to us. But we're united in him. You cannot separate Christ from his people. That's the point. Notice what he says in verse 45. Thus it is written, this is 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. Notice this language. This is all about union. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. We were united in Adam. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, just as we have borne the image of Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's union, beloved. And what is that image? Verse 51, Behold, I tell your mystery, we will not all sleep, we will all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall all be changed, for this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul comes full circle. If we deny our resurrection, he started off saying, 
You deny it of Christ because Christ is united with us. And if you deny it of him, your faith is in vain. It's worthless. But if Christ has risen, which he has, we will rise. Because we're united in him. And because we rise, our labor is not in vain. It's not worthless. But notice the wording, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Union and communion with Christ is the key here. Well, my timer's blinking at me. I feel like I'm just getting started here. <laughs> There's so much more that can be said, and maybe uh, in the following sermons, I'll continue along this theme. But beloved, I, <clears throat> the main point, and I think you got it, the key here, I think, to all this, is our union with Christ. That's why Paul says, if you deny this of, of us, if we're not going to receive these things in the future, the implication is, because of our union with Christ, Christ hasn't received it. And if Christ hasn't received it, then he failed. He's not the Messiah. It's all worth it. It's, it's all, this is why Paul could say it's all or nothing. And it's all grounded, I believe, in this union that we have in Christ. Christ not only died as a substitute, he not only suffered on our behalf, but he was resurrected and glorified in our stead and our behalf. We will receive those things. And so contemplate that, especially now as Pastor Enro comes. The Lord's Supper that really is the main heart of the supper is our union with Christ. That's what we're symbolizing here. When we partake of these elements. We're not just looking at bread and looking at wine and observing it and saying, oh, that reminds us of Christ's body, you know, body and blood. We not only observe the elements, but we observe the actions. And what are the actions? We partake in these things. Union with Christ. Are you united in Christ? 